0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit CrossingParagold.com. When they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. We believe. Thank you very much. Will you pray with me? Father, as I uh, hear your word spoken over me, even my child, joy that we are your children, that you pursue us and you love us even more than I love my own two sons, you love me and you pursue me. And thank you that even in this this scene with these disciples who seem to always (laughs) misunderstand you, Father, you love them. You gave us the greatest gift of salvation in Jesus' name, and then you gave us your Holy Spirit that is with us. And so, Spirit, I ask that you be, um, your presence be manifest in this room this morning. We may hear your word, not my words, um, not my preparation, but, Father, we may hear from you and that some may be saved. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, every year at Christmas, uh, Sarah and I, my wife, we buy an ornament that signifies the year in our mind. There's different themes throughout the year. We'll process in early December, like, okay, what's been the theme for this year? What could we buy as an ornament that sums up this year? So, for instance, one year, uh, I got, we got an ornament that was a tennis shoe. That was the year I got into running, I ran a, a marathon, and it was really cool, like, so we got this. It was a big achievement for me, so we we got this tennis shoe, put it on the tree. Another year, uh, we got an airplane because it was our son Jack's first time to ever fly on an airplane. We took a a couple trips via airplane because of some uh, airline miles that we got to make that all free because we don't really fly a whole lot, and that was a big year. Another one is the the one that was really fun to buy, but I'm a little ashamed for you to see it on my tree, so I will put it on the back of the tree. Uh, It's a wad of cash because it was the year that we both got full-time jobs. Like, we went from part-time employees with, like, multiple jobs to, like, a full-time job. Uh, and that just felt really cool to us. Uh, now, all these years later, I'm like, eh, it's a little weird to have a wad of cash on my tree. This year, uh, as we were thinking about what to get, we we finally decided on this one. I got a photo here. It is a toolbox. It's got a bunch of different tools in there. Now, I didn't say this in the first service. I'm going to pause here for a second. You also see an Oscar Mayer wiener one there. That was not... That was not one of the year's themes. In the first service, there was an uncontrollable chuckle that I didn't know what was going on. It was all about Oscar Mayer Wiener and what the heck that could have signified. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. It's just my son likes Oscar Mayer Wiener, and that's it. Okay. (laughs) Toolbox. Why did we get a toolbox? Well, not every year is sunshine and daisies. Right? Not every year is just Oh man, we just got so much to celebrate this year. And we have a lot to celebrate this year. But this year, I swear around every corner, something else was breaking. Sarah's car at the beginning of the year wasn't working so bad that we bought a different car. Turned out we didn't like that car, so we got our car fixed. Got it going. Middle of the year, it broke again. Had to fix it. Busted my knuckle really bad on that. Still hurts. That was like two months ago. Right now, her horn doesn't work. Like her car is just constantly broken this year. Um, Our HVAC We have multiple HVAC units Two of them broke at the exact same time In the summer It was awful We lived at her parents house for a week or two While our house was 85 degrees inside Uh, My son broke his arm That happened Um, There's so many different things That were just breaking this year It was annoying Like Our refrigerator had to be worked on Our dishwasher had to be worked on Around the corner everything was breaking Maybe your year was great Maybe it was your first year married or engaged. Maybe your first Christmas for a baby. Maybe you even had like a health scare in your family that just gave you like this renewed sense of like family and how important that is. And that made it a little bit more joyful. But it's not all good. Not every year is up and to the right. Sometimes it's really hard. Often it's a blend of joy and sorrow there are seasons of our life where Christmas is less like joy to the world and more like woe is me. But maybe for you this year, more than experiencing like inconveniences or costly repairs, you've experienced great tragedy this year. I've certainly had those years as well. And I'm sorry that you've gone through it. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. The reality is, I think that we can all agree that we can look around us and realize that we live in a broken world, a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, a world that is riddled with disease and poverty, with violence and addiction and death. We inherently know that this is not the way it's supposed to be, and we long for everything to be made right somehow, but how? We live in an age that theologians like to call the already and not yet. Jesus has come already, which we just celebrated at Christmas and the entire Advent season. If you remember, Advent is just simply this Latin word that means coming or arrival. Jesus came. He arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago. But here's the thing. little sweet baby Jesus in the manger doesn't do anything for you. If he doesn't grow to become a man who lived a perfect, sinless life, and die a sacrificial death for you and me. He has already secured our justification, our righteousness. The war has been won. It's already complete. Like Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And the way the Apostle Paul writes throughout the New Testament, it's not like your salvation, uh, you know, it's going to happen. Like, it is secure now and continually forever. So what is the deal? If Jesus has already secured our salvation, why has everything not yet been put under His authority and been restored and redeemed like that? I love that Scripture actually doesn't even hide away from this fact. It doesn't hide away from the fact that we're still waiting for restoration. You see, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, In putting everything under Him, meaning Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's not yet brought full and total restoration to the world. The book of Revelation describes this new heaven and new earth, like a, a new Jerusalem coming down. There was no need for a temple, no need for the sun or the moon, because the presence of God was there available to everyone. The gates of the city don't even shut or lock because there is no threat of violence there. And then John begins to write about this river of life flowing through the city, which is a, a really cool like callback to Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote six hundred years before John. And in chapter seven, he has this grand vision from God. And, you know, a lot of the beginning of Ezekiel's really like harsh and like judgment towards Israel who's turned their back on God. But towards the end, it's all about how God's going to restore everything. And Ezekiel chapter 47, uh, we see him walking around a new city just like John. A guy's out measuring everything. They start walking through this river that starts at the temple and it's like ankle deep at first. And then as they keep going, somehow this river gets deeper and deeper, which that's not the way rivers usually work. But it's giving more and more life as it goes through the city. And then they get to this point where Ezekiel starts to mention what's around the river. And then verse 12 of chapter 47, he says this. He says, Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Now that's beautiful. But Its beauty was really brought out to me, and I bring this up because the author, uh, Chad Bird, pointed this out about the imagery that we see here that we probably run past if you you read this text on your own. He says this, When biblical authors portray the end of all things, they often dip their brush in the colors of Genesis. End time resembles beginning time. So when Ezekiel and John describe vivifying waters flowing from God, they borrow imagery of Eden's river watering the world. But they also both mention the leaf. In Eden, Adam and Eve used the leaf of fig trees to hide their naked shame. But at the end of all things, leaves will serve an entirely opposite purpose. They will be for healing and for the healing of the nations. This is ultimate restoration. You see, in God's restoration of all things... <clears throat> He does not shy away from what separates you from Him. He actually uses that guilt and that shame in our lives to bring about true restoration. I think that if you're like me, you'd much prefer God just ignore it. Like, just pretend it didn't exist. But He knows that for true relational healing, we must have our shame healed, not ignored. That's exactly what Jesus does with Peter, the Apostle Peter, right? Right? Maybe you remember this story. Uh, It's at Jesus' last supper. He's talking to the disciples. And he says, someone here is going to betray me. And Peter stands up and he's like, hey, not me. It's Not me, right? And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, before the sun rises, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'd never do that. Like, I'll, I'll die before I deny you. And what happens? Jesus is arrested. Peter's actually kind of following behind, trying to get a a good visual. Like, what's happening to his friend? And three times, he's pointed out as one of Jesus' disciples. And he denies ever knowing him. He even brings curses down upon ever possibly knowing this man. And the rooster crows, and he feels deep anguish. But it doesn't end there. You see, when Jesus dies, you know, he's resurrected. And he appears to the disciples a few different times. One of these times that he appears to the disciples... He sees them out fishing and he's on the bank. And he got, he does a miracle where they catch too many fish to haul into the boat. And Peter swims out of the boat and goes to see Jesus. And he comes up to Jesus and Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And that first time I think Peter's probably like, yes, I love you. I love you. He asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter must be getting a little like weary. Like why, why would he ask me a second time? Maybe he didn't hear me. Yes, Jesus, I love you. And the third time, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter's got to remember the fact that he's denied him three times just days before. And how Jesus is now restoring their relationship. He's not ignoring it. He's not pretending like it didn't happen. He's saying, I know this happened. And yet, Peter, I still love you. I will never deny you. And this is how... Restoration happens in God's kingdom. This is what we've been waiting for in the second Advent. It's not just paradise. It's relational restoration. That's what the second Advent's all about. And so all Advent season, we've been talking about how um, we celebrate that Jesus has come and we anticipate His return. This morning, with this text that we have, our focus is going to be on the anticipation of that return, the second Advent. We're not going to be doing the prediction of his advent. We're not getting out cereal box decoder rings to figure out when it's going to happen and name a date on it. But we're talking about how do we anticipate that he has promised he's coming back. And how does that anticipation affect the way that you live your life today? Because I would assume that for many of us, myself included, it often has little impact on my day. But should it? Should the return of this king that the scriptures all talk about affect your daily life? Do you anticipate him returning the way you might anticipate a house guest? Or have you grown weary going, I don't know if it will ever happen? This morning I want us to see that even though the traditional Christmas Advent season is over and maybe you've already put away your Christmas decorations We're still in this season of waiting for the second advent, the return of our king. And he's not asked us to wait idly by, twiddling our thumbs. Throughout his life, he taught his disciples to be ready for his return. Anticipating his return affects our attitude and our actions. So this morning, I wanted to walk through two focuses for a disciple who's waiting for the king's return under the headings of spiritual formation and social reformation. Here's a fun thing, Todd. Uh, This sermon is kind of a standalone sermon. It wasn't necessarily planned. I could preach on whatever I wanted to preach on. So I chose to preach on this. Uh, Jared's going to start a brand new sermon next week called How to Spend a uh, Day with Jesus, which is about spiritual formation. So (laughs) uh, next week's sermon is going to be very similar, but you should still come because it's super-duper practical in how you can spend a day with Jesus, and how that affects your spiritual formation. So let's come next week for the beginning of that sermon series. So, alright, spiritual formation. I heard Tim Keller one time talk about the, the second Advent in a sermon, and he said, we can know two things about Jesus' return. Number one, it's absolutely going to happen. You can trust the Scriptures. It says it's going to happen. Jesus said it's going to happen. Throughout the Scriptures it says it's going to happen. He's going to return. Number two, we don't know when it's going to happen. So I'm preaching a sermon about the second advent, the the return of Jesus. And the reality is, it might not happen in our lifetime. It's still important enough that we need to talk about it. We need to be preparing for it. But it might not happen in your life. It might, but it might not. The reality, though, is that since Jesus ascended to the heavens 2,000 years ago or so, uh, Human beings have been dying ever since. And the reality is, whether Jesus comes back in your lifetime or not, we have an opportunity to work on our spiritual formation. And Sarah and I were talking recently about how shocked we are about recent, like, it just seems like so many people around our age are getting cancer. And it's a scary thought. I mean, um, I looked up some stats. I'm not going to share them about people under 50 years old getting cancer. And, like, it's staggeringly kind of scary about how that's increasing in people under 50 years old. And that hits home hard for me because my mom died of cancer in her 40s. And like I'm quickly approaching my 40s. And so the reality is whether Jesus comes back or not, we have to be concerned about our spiritual integrity, our personal integrity, We to be less concerned about our personal interests and you know all the really cool stuff you just got for Christmas and your job prospects and your big plans for 2024. Maybe you got a grand vacation plan coming up or you're super planned about your retirement. Like that might come to pass, and I'm not saying don't plan for those things, but with the reality knowing that Jesus may return or you're going to die and you don't know when that might be because it could be much sooner than you think. We need to be concerned about our personal integrity. Look with me at Second uh, Peter chapter 3. In this part, chapter 3 of uh, Peter's letter, it talks a lot about anticipating Jesus' return. And here in verse 14 he says, so, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, Jesus' return, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So two quick thoughts on that. Peter tells them to be concerned about their spiritual life, their holiness. Now, Jesus alone makes you spotless and blameless. Peter acknowledges that in his letters. But we still have work to do to be in line with what Jesus has called us to be, to be his disciples, to work on our spiritual formation. And the second thing he says is, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So if you've ever grown weary of like, man, why has it been 2,000 years? Well, for one, His patience means salvation, means it's an opportunity for you to be saved. Before Jesus returns, He gave you the chance to hear His Word and be saved today. And He continues to wait to continue to give people the opportunity to hear His Word. I have no idea when He'll return. I have no idea why He picks the time He will pick to return. But why he waits is for salvation according to his word. You see, the entire point of Christianity is not that you might um, do some good actions every now and then. It's not for you to just stop doing stuff. Stop cussing. Stop drinking. Stop filling the blank. That's not the point. The entire point of all of this Christianity is about a relationship with God, which then allows you to have healthy relationships with the people around you. Oh, uh, There's a book. Dallas Willard called Spirit of the Disciplines that is a group of us that are reading right now together and oh I've loved this book and I'm only like 25 pages in Uh, but he says faith today is treated as something that only should make us different not that actually does or can make us different in reality we vainly struggle against the evils of this world waiting to die and go to heaven And somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental or inward thing. We're so afraid of being like works-based spirituality that we just throw all works out the window. Dallas Willard is saying like, no, there is work to be done in your spiritual growth. He's famous for saying the gospel is not opposed to effort, but to earning. It's an attitude difference there. And what What he's saying here is that modern Christianity in the West has effectively become nothing more in a lot of places than a social club. And a social club event can do nothing for your spiritual formation. Like if you're coming here to a worship gathering week in and week out, feeling some guilt and shame while you sing some songs and hear one of us talk on a stage, and then you go and do nothing about it, what's the point of that? You're not growing, not being spiritually formed. As we move into the new year, I'd encourage you to focus on what it really means to be a disciple. Jesus didn't say, come follow me and sit in a seat. He said, follow me. And he gave these disciples uh, a job to do, which is to be the witnesses of his goodness in all the land. So what's it mean to really follow him? How can you be spiritually formed in 2024? If you've been around here any length of time at all, you've heard us talk about like what we, uh, the, the phrase that we use about what is a disciple, the definition of a disciple. And a disciple for us is someone who radically reorients their life around three realities of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. So I, being with Jesus, here's an example. I love my wife. love to spend time with her. Uh, we have healthy hobbies outside of the home. We're not always together. We're not Uh, weirdly dependent on each other. But I love to be with my my wife. She's my best friend. Uh, We have similar senses of humor. She thinks I'm really funny. And so I like to be with my wife. This is essentially similar to what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus. Because the first goal of being a disciple is not doing stuff for Jesus. It's not impressing Him. It's not lashing yourself for your sin. It's be with Jesus. Come and follow me, he says. In our passage this morning, Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, you can't see that you're with Jesus, but you can be with Jesus. His literal presence can be with you because His Spirit can be with you. You can be with Jesus in prayer, meditation, Scripture reading, or even having a spiritual conversation with friends. And so, like, if you're like, okay, that sounds great, but like, I, that's not me. I've never done that. I'm not, I'm not good at that. I don't know what to do. Like, how do I even read the Bible? My first encouragement for you is to know that, like, in all of this, your achievement or your performance is not the point. You're not going to impress God with how much you read the Bible, how consistently you read the Bible, how you never miss a day. That's not the point. The point of it all is an awareness that His presence is with you and growing to realize that it is always with you. And so what if... You start 2024 off by picking out one spiritual practice to engage in this year. Don't try to go from I do zero spiritual activities to I'm now a monk and I'm doing all of the things. Like you're going to fail and you're going to give that up before you give up your diet in the 2024 year. So like just pick one thing. Maybe it's reading the Bible. Maybe you're like, listen, like this is more decoration than anything. I've got a Bible that sits on a table, but I don't know how to open it. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe this year you set a goal of just like, hey, man, I just want to spend some time in the Bible. I'm going to say this year I'm going to read the Gospel of John. I'm not saying I'm going to read the whole Bible. I'm not saying that. That's a lot. It takes a lot of effort. I'm just going to read the Gospel of John this year and see how long that might take me. If it takes me a year, it takes me a year. I would encourage you that if you have a goal like reading Scripture to do a couple things. One is have a plan. Don't just randomly open it. Uh, and go, what am I going to read about this this uh, day? Um, First Chronicles 28 Gifts for Building the Temple I don't know what this is about, but then you just start reading it like, you're not going to get much out of it that way have a plan, know what you're doing and, this is super important, have a friend man, like, I like to run but I don't like to run alone I like to run with a friend because a friend encourages me and a, a friend, like It's like iron sharpening iron, like we're doing this together, we're growing together. And you could do the same with scripture reading, like have a plan and have a friend. Maybe this year is a year for you of more focused prayer, or focused silence and solitude, or maybe it's a year where you ramp up listening to worship music more often, like whatever it is, remember that these spiritual practices are not ways to please God or impress God, but to rather put yourself in the presence of God, to be with Jesus. And so, the more that you're with someone that you love and admire, the more you end up looking like them. My oldest son loves to look like me. He does look like me. Like me. Uh, I mentioned in the first service that uh, at his uh, school, my wife is up there a lot. She subs or serves in the PTA. And the is art teacher, uh, Ms. Parrish, is that right? Art teacher mentioned to her uh, how much Jack looks like her. And she goes, oh. You haven't seen his dad yet. Uh, And then the first time Miss Parrish saw me, she goes, yep, you're wrong. He looks like him. Now, a couple things. One, that just points out how oddly we look alike. And it's weird. It's weird that we look that much alike, that our son looks like that. But we're both very pale. Uh, That's it. He's very pale. But anyway, he likes to look like me. He likes to dress like me. And hilariously enough, if you saw him in between services out there in the lobby, He was wearing a black and red plaid shirt today. So he likes to look like me. For his birthday this past year, we bought him a pair of tennis shoes that looks almost exactly like a pair of tennis shoes that I have. And in addition to dressing like me, he often likes to, uh, you know, mimic, or one might say mock, my mannerisms and pretend to be like me. Like he might stand in a doorway like this because I'm standing in a doorway like that. Like he just likes to do what I do, which is really fun and really cool and I'm seeing some fun things out of that. Also seeing some awful parts of that because I don't love everything about me and I'm seeing some of those things come out in my son as well. He loves me. He admires me. He wants to be like me. He wants to become like me. Paul tells his readers in the New Testament to imitate him. That might sound arrogant, but what he's saying is I've actually laid aside all of my stuff, and I'm imitating Christ. And so, if you imitate me, you'll be imitating Christ. Because Paul allowed Jesus to change everything about him. He turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the persecuted. He turned this Gentile hater into the, the first great missionary to the Gentiles, which is non Jewish people. He allowed Christ to mold him into his image and begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which he lists out. In one of his letters, which is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these fruit of the Spirit are are certainly listed in the Bible as gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they don't just happen randomly. You don't randomly have holy patience in a great moment of need, but you practice patience in the hundred little moments of life. Uh, Last night, uh, we got to have a, a little Christmas dinner with some of my aunts and uncles uh, on my dad's side of the family. And one of my aunts uh, was very angry at my stepbrother, who's not there, not welcome uh, in the family gathering. And she was very, very, very angry at him. And she's talking to me. But she's like, but Jesus is helping me like, not like, express that, not act on that anger. Like, I, The anger's there. The anger is valid, but the way in which she is processing it is going to the father who is her advocate. Going to the father who she knows is going to vindicate all the wrongs in life and be at peace with that and love her enemy. It's just weird to think that someone in your own family could be the enemy. This, This aunt of mine is seeing the fruit of the Spirit come out after years and years of being a Christian and trying to be faithful in all the little things. So when this really big thing happened with my stepbrother... She's able to be patient and kind. Even though she doesn't want to be, she's able to be. The spiritual practices that Paul followed did not earn him salvation. They won't earn you salvation. They don't make God love you any more than he already does. They can't do that. But without these spiritual practices, you will not be spiritually formed. Dallas Willard again says, we can become like Christ by doing one thing. By following Him in the overall style of life He chose for Himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe He knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities He engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities He Himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in fellowship of His Father. You can become like Christ. But it has to be this full adoption of the lifestyle of Jesus. And I'm not saying a Middle Eastern first century Jew. What Willard's talking about is engaging in the activities that put you in the presence of God. Being in continual fellowship with God will change you. That will make you become like Christ. And if you have skepticism that you actually can, you're like, man, listen, I'm at point zero. How could I ever become like Christ? I'd encourage you to adopt the, the thought process of a marathon runner. Uh, I like to run. It's the only exercise I do. Anything else is death to me. I can't lift weights, so I just run. Because if somebody's going to beat me up, what am I going to be prepared to do? Run away. So I run. I can run longer than you. Just that's all I need to know. Uh, <laughs> in 2023, uh, one of my greatest joys of the year was the fact that I got to help five of my friends all complete a half marathon uh, for the very first time in their life. So there's three of them uh, that that we ran the St. Jude half marathon uh, this year. And it was really fun to be able to help guys set a goal and accomplish that goal every step of the way. Most notably, my friend Sean here. He's the guy, if you don't know Sean, he's the guy second from the left. And one year ago to the day, Uh, he and I had just gotten into going to the 8 Mile Creek Trail and doing some walks and maybe a little bit of running. He was trying to get into it. It's a new thing for him. And uh, one year ago to the day, he had texted me and asked if I was going to be at the trail. And I said, no, I'm going to go do the Resolution Run, which is an annual two-mile run at Greene County Tech High School uh, through Carrot Hills a little bit. It's just two miles. It's low pressure. It's a lot of fun. Why don't you come and do it with me, Sean? And Sean said... No bueno. I don't have the confidence to run in front of people yet, so I'm just going to go to the trail by myself. And he did. And I went and did the resolution run. Uh, and that's that. One year later, to the day, maybe to the minute, um, Sean has now completed five half marathon races. Last week, we uh, or two weeks ago, we ran 15 miles. Didn't even get a medal. Uh, he, he's become a runner. And he and I are currently uh, training to run a full marathon in eight weeks. That's 26 miles. So in the course of one year, this brother of mine, this friend of mine went from, I'm not running two miles in front of 40 people. Not going to happen. To now, we're going to run 26 miles in just a couple months together. It's a big change. There's a lot of steps along the process to go from a non-runner to being able to say, you know what, I'm a runner. Like, I like to run. A lot of steps. You don't just go from, I can't run a mile in less than 15 minutes to, I'm going to sign up for a marathon, unless you're an idiot, which is what I did, like six years ago. Um, but you take all these little steps along the way to become a runner. I say all that to say then, spiritual formation is a lot of, uh, it's very similar. You don't go from, I don't even understand what you mean by verses in the Bible. What's, what's a verse? Like a song? Like what's a verse? To Biblical scholar. Like, you don't just jump from there to there. And here's the thing. Biblical scholar, while those are great and awesome and I love them, that's not the goal. The goal is not for you to become an expert on the Bible, but to become in a relationship with the Father, with Jesus, with the Spirit. Being with uh, Jesus through prayer and scripture reading are these wonderful ways to fill your tank so that you can humbly be loving and patient and kind to the people around you. You see, becoming like Jesus is putting into practice the, the way of relating to the world that he had, truly valuing other people more than yourself and if you do that like stuff like you know loving your enemy, seems like the only logical thing to do. hating your enemy actually seems illogical the more that you'll be with Jesus and realize that you are his you were his enemy, and yet he loved you, and if he can love you. You can love, fill in the blank. And the more you're with Him, the more that reality becomes just your knee-jerk reaction. And so in the process of becoming like Jesus, we do what He did. And this do what He did is a combination of our final point, which is uh, social reformation. We have spiritual formation, which is about you and your relationship with God, but that doesn't end there. It has to play itself out in the world. What did Jesus do? He had meals with people that the religious leaders thought he shouldn't. He shared God's love with those people on the fringes. He prayed for people. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Now author uh, Neil Plantiga, he points out that for a healthy Christian, either your circumstances are so dark that you are passionate about the return of the king you're passionate about one day seeing the Father face to face and you were longing for that day all the time. Or if you have the heart of God and your life is comfortable and you're not like, you know, like, it'd be cool if Jesus comes back, but like, I'm I'm enjoying life right now. It's not that big of a passion for me. At the very least, you either have this passion or you have compassion for the people who are in the midst of the dark, dark world that we're in right now. And my hope would be that if you actually are in that comfortable position... That you can actually, uh, as you're becoming compassionate for people, you realize that your comforts are just counterfeit versions of the true comfort found in Jesus. And we have these four calls throughout the Advent season. And just because uh, that sermon series is over doesn't mean that these calls are necessarily over. But they're wonderful practices that you can do what Jesus did. You can clothe the naked, feed the hungry, welcome the stranger, the lonely, visit the afflicted. We do all these things to show God's love to a dark world. But I also want to say, we, we, more than periodic activities, more than annual activity to do, Jesus is calling us to a holistic, missional lifestyle. And so I would pray that the second advent is a, a strong motivator for you to obey Jesus' command, to bring this good news to your version of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, who by the way are these disciples, like kind of enemies, right? Uh, James and John asked Jesus to bring down like fire from heaven on Samaria. Kind of weird. He's saying, take the good news to your enemies and to the ends of the earth. The world, man, the world is consistently, constantly being deformed from this good and perfect thing that God made into an image that looks less and less like the image of God but the good news of Jesus is that he has the power to not only transform you but to transform the entire world you see we all have this tendency to believe that our greatest problem lies outside of us our greatest problem is fill in the blank it's my family it's my job it's the government it's my kids it's my neighbors it's the guy on the stage who won't shut up my greatest problem is outside of me And the only solution is inside of me. But the gospel tells us that our greatest problem is not those things. Your greatest problem is not physical, but rather it is a spiritual problem that lies within you. And your only solution to a spiritual problem is not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or becoming a better you. It's not a new job that's going to satisfy you, a new house, a new spouse, a new president, fill in the blank. These cannot fix the spiritual problem within you. Even these disciples in our text today, you see, <laughs> they ask Jesus, and the last time they're going to see him, I don't know if they know it's going the last time they're going to see him, but the last time they're going to see him, and they go, okay, so now you're going to kick the Rome, Roman guys out and give us our kingdom back? And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. Like, <laughs> he doesn't even answer their question, really. All he says is, it's not for you to know the Father's times. You've got a job to do. Take the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I say all that to say, we often believe that our world's problems can be satisfied by something other than a spiritual remedy. As the church, we have a lot to offer the world. We have the antidote to what's made our world sick. And yet we so often believe Whether it's up here, probably not, but definitely in our actions. There's not much use for the gospel outside these four walls. I can come here and be encouraged by the good news and then go out and live my life as if it's not a part of me. Or at the very least that people don't want to hear about it and I'm not going to tell them about it. Johnny Cash has this song and he says, You're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. His critique of modern Christianity can be a valid summary of the way American Christians are viewed by the world. Head in the clouds, thinking about Jesus and his restoration of the world, and how that affects me, while being useless to the the society that we live in. It's a common view of Western Christianity. But as C.S. Lewis writes, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most good For the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Lewis is saying that in order to really make a difference in the world around you, historically speaking, you do it best if you're anticipating Christ's return. Those who really believe that there's more to this life than this life that we're currently living are the ones really motivated to change the world throughout history. Christians understanding that The promised second advent, don't lose hope that the world's getting darker and darker, but in the midst of the darkness are willing to stand as a light. And in doing so are a part of healing the broken world, which is like a precursor to when Jesus comes bringing with him ultimate healing. When there will be no more danger, no more sickness, no more disease or poverty, no more cancer. And when those chains of sin, which have been broken away from you, but you can't seem to let go of, you're still holding the chains in your arms for some reason, they'll be taken away and thrown into a deep sea and never to be seen again. The brokenness of the world around us either gives us a great passion for Jesus' return, or at the very least, I pray it gives you compassion for the people who are suffering around you. C.S. Lewis, man, he wasn't saying that it's only Christians who did good. Plenty of non-believers have done good for the world. But what he's saying is that the Christians who did the most good for the present world is because they were concerned about the return of Christ. But why be concerned if his return only means glorious restoration? Because for those who are not abiding in Christ, his return also means, or their death also means, that they'll stand before the judge of the universe without defense. The Bible tells us that the penalty for sin is death and that all have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel is that the great judge became judged for you. The light of the world was extinguished for you. But also, it's only good news because he didn't stay extinguished. Through his resurrection and his ascension, he proved to have the authority and power to be the great light to the universe And He displays His power and authority and shines a healing light in your darkest places. Whether you're at the point that you believe this yet or not, I hope that you can at least hope that it's true. As you look at the dark world around us, I hope that you're encouraged that this Bible tells us that God might love you. Because the truth is, He absolutely does. And no greater love could be on display than Jesus giving up His life you which is what we celebrate each week when we uh, take communion so at this time I want to invite our band back up and th- those that will be preparing communion every single week we take the sacrament of communion because it's a, a tangible reminder a physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us we live in this world that is constantly telling you that you know you can do it on your own you have the strength you have the power. And this meal here, this symbol reminds us that you actually can't. You are dependent upon Jesus for everything. And so we take this bread, which represents his perfect life, shed for you. You take his his blood the, the juice which represents his blood shed for you. And realize that ultimate satisfaction can be found in him alone. And that he is coming back. He is returning. And so we take this bread, they'll tear tear a piece of the bread off and tell you this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you take that bread, you dip it into the cup and eat it, and they'll tell you this is the blood of Jesus shed for you. And if you need a a gluten-free option or not comfortable with being served up here yet, uh, we have a self-serve station over to my left and your right. And then I'd say, hey, if you're a Christian, come forward. If you're not a Christian in the room, we're super glad that you're here. This is the perfect place for you. But don't come and take communion because it means nothing for you. This is declaring that all of my hope is in Jesus. And if that's not true for you, don't take part in this uh, ceremony. Uh, If you'd like somebody to pray for you, man, I'll be here in the front. Uh, Our prayer team is uh, in the back of the room, and they would love to pray for you. And uh, with that, will you stand with me? We're going to sing a couple songs. You can come take communion whenever you feel ready. We prayed for. Father, thank you that you have loved us enough that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not have to come for us. You didn't come live a perfect, sinless life to like shove it in our face that it was possible and just prove to us that we're broken and fallen. You came to do it to show how far you would go to pursue us. The cross reminds us just how serious our sin is, and it reminds us how serious you love us. I pray this morning we're able to celebrate that love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.